All right. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. The message is entitled, Confidence in Christ Jesus. We have seen the progression of the epistle to the Philippians as Paul is writing it. In chapter 1, Christ is the believer's life. Verse 1, or verse 21 says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In chapter 2, we have Christ the believer's mind. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now in chapter 3, Christ is the believer's goal. Verse 10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That's death now to live in the spirit, not when you die and you become a stiff, okay? Talking about now. Paul has um, closed the second chapter with three examples of men who have followed the example of the mind of Christ by their humble service to others. Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Paul now exhorted the Philippians to have confidence in the righteousness of Christ alone for their standing before God. And it's characterized by three things here in the first three verses. Let me read. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me uh, to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, some of you think I'm bad. Did you just hear what he said? The exhortation to the Philippians to have confidence in the righteousness of Christ alone, to stand before God, is characterized by three things. First, the necessary repetition. Verse 1. Secondly, the nasty admonition. Verse 2. Thirdly, the trusty proclamation in verse 3. We begin with the necessary repetition. Look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul here uh, reminded the Philippians to center their joy on Christ. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul is not coming to the close of his letter in the use of the word finally as something. Some say that Paul was about to finish the, um, the letter, and then the Spirit of God redirected him to continue with what follows. Now, how do we know this? If Paul does not tell us this, it's sheer speculation. So it's important that you study and spend time with your text first before you go to a commentary. Because if you just go to a commentary, they corrupt your mind and you start putting the dumb things they're speculating on. If it's not found in the verse, it's not there. Now, if we were reading Jude, he tells us he's interrupted by the Spirit. So we can record it. In Jude verse 3, he says, um, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. So he says, this is what I was going to talk to you about, the common salvation. I was redirected about the faith that was given once and for all to the saints. So he tells you that. Then you can record it. The word finally means um, remaining or rest. So rather than to think that Paul is finishing the letter, the word finally would be better translated now, furthermore, or as for the rest. The same word is found one other time towards the end of the letter in chapter 4, verse 8. The word can be used in various ways. You can find them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, and many others. Still others say that beginning chapter 3, the second part of verse 1, all the way to 19, is a separate letter that has nothing to do with this epistle. 
where these PhDs come up with this stuff? Beats me. This is totally subjective. There is no internal evidence at all. Paul addressed them by their family ties notice. The phrase, my brethren, is an expression of loving endearment. They came to Christ through him, and they were a great concern to him. The word um, brethren, as you know, Adelphus, um, brothers and sisters born into the family of God by grace through faith, literally born of the same womb. Paul ordered them, notice, to rejoice in the Lord. This is a, a command, not a suggestion that he's given to them. The word rejoice means to be glad. The tense is the imperative, present active. Literally, keep on rejoicing. This is to be the ongoing obedience and practice of the believer. Anybody find it easy and natural? I don't. You got to work at it. You got to put on the armor. You've got to fight. You got to keep your mind and heart focused on Jesus. This has nothing to do with our feelings or emotions, but with what we know about our position in Christ. This is the first time Paul directly gives the sphere of Christian joy. Underline it. In the Lord. You can't always rejoice in your circumstance or situation or your feelings or your emotions. But he's not asking you to do that. It's interesting, much Christian counseling today says, well, how do you feel? What? doesn't matter how you feel. How are you doing in obedience? That's the right question. This is the ninth time out of 12 joy is mentioned. Paul on the 11th time declared the imperative command again in chapter 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now he adds always. Again I will say rejoice. He didn't say if you feel like it. <clears throat> if um, you didn't get fired. Um, he just makes it absolutely a command. The command is to celebrate with exceeding joy over the righteousness of Jesus for their acceptance before God. That's what you're celebrating. That God took you into his family and I. That God accepted you as you are because you trusted Jesus Christ. Wow. The context is between the righteousness that God accepts and self-righteousness that God rejects. The believer is to rejoice in the Lord's righteousness for justification, Romans 5, 1 and 2. The believer is to rejoice in the Lord's righteousness for sanctification, chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of the very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. The believers to rejoice in the Lord's righteousness for glorification. He's going to tell us in Philippians chapter 3 there, verse 20 through 21. He will raise our lowly bodies. Glorify. And so notice the Apostle Paul reminded the Philippians about their spiritual benefits through um, rep repetitive teaching. That's what you get the word catechism from if you're a good old catholic you remember catechism line upon line here a little there a little repetition he says for me to write the same thing to you is not tedious but for you it is safe paul is interpreted by some that there was a lost letter that he's referring to much like the corinthian letter first corinthians and second corinthians second corinthians third corinthians really there's a letter in between. But this is not the case for Philippians. So they have no internal evidence for such a thing. The only reason we know this about the Corinthian letter is because we have internal evidence that tells us there was another letter. 
Otherwise, we would have no right to declare it. Notice Paul identified the things he was writing by the phrase to me, for me to write the same things to you. The word write graphy, we get graphite from it, refers to the present letter that he's writing at the time. The apostle is referring to some of the things he had taught them before. Um, he had some visits with them. He taught them. He founded the church. And he talked about some of these things. If you remember in 1 Thessalonians, he was only there three weeks. And yet, he taught about the rapture, and second coming, day of the Lord, all kinds of stuff. Some commentators say Paul is speaking about those opposing him at Rome in the opening chapter, in chapter 1, if you remember, verse 16 and 17. But, they were preaching Christ for the wrong motives, not the law. These are two different groups. There is no warning given to the believer about chapter 1, those guys that were preaching some out of contention, some out of to add to his hurt, and then some were encouraged and preached Christ. It's only the clarity about their actions and their motives that is given to us there, but they're, they're, not, they're not warned about them. But if you compare the two, these guys are preaching Christ in chapter 1. These guys are not. They're preaching the law. Notice Paul indicated that to remain or to remind them about things they already knew was no problem to him. He says, it's not tedious. The word means grievous. It was not bothersome to him. It was not irritating to him. It was not irksome to him. As a mother who cares for her infant, whether it be at 10 in the morning, 5 in the afternoon, or 3 in the morning, because your labor is out of love and affection, we get our word uh, onerous. From this word. Something involving an amount of effort and difficulty that is oppressively burdensome. The reason was that Paul did not see this as a burdensome duty. But that it was a labor of love. He loved them as their spiritual father. See, one of the hardest things that you will ever face is to be faithful in your home to be consistent as a father as a husband as a wife as a grandparent you know your place and you're faithful to your place and you do not leave those places Paul indicated the evidence of his love for the Philippians when he said but for you it is safe. The sharp contrast is clear by the word but, an adversative conjunction here. Reminding them it was no burden to him. But not reminding them could be a problem to them. To me it's no problem, but if I don't tell you it could be a problem to you. So because it's going to keep you from problems, it's really not a problem to me. It's a joy. Parents do the same thing with their children. He was concerned about their spiritual protection. The word they're safe simply means to be firm or sure. Reminding them about rejoicing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. This would protect them against the Judaizer self-righteous teaching that he will address in the next verses, Isaiah 28, 10, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. They were mocking Isaiah, Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah, we know here. So basic, really? Repetition never hurts us at all. Peter illustrates the need 
and benefit of repetition, knowing that he soon was going to put this tent away in Second Peter 1, 12 through 15. So I write this epistle to you that you might have it when I leave, in remembrance. It's important. The believer's joy is evident by understanding his righteous standing before God in Christ, resulting in fellowship. In 1 John um, chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, it says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Our joy is full because we have fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and you and I together. That's a miracle. An absolute privilege. The believer is to celebrate their justification before God with great joy because nothing in this world can produce it or take it away. It is the work of the Spirit. Happiness, success, and many other things can be affected and taken from us in this world. But our joy is not based on circumstance or situations, but Christ and His justification. The believer's joy is dependent on hearing and keeping God's word. In Psalm 19, 8 through 11, it says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. Wow. What a joy. Sin robs me and you of our joy. Because we know we're out of fellowship with God. It's broken. Right away we know it. it. Grieves the spirit. Loss of joy is usually replaced by being grumpy. Negative. Murmuring. Complaining. Depressed. No, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Hmm. You see, um. This was the necessary repetition. Notice, secondly, comes the nasty admonition in verse 2. The apostle here in verse 2 declared the Philippians were to watch for deceivers. Nothing new. Some people get real upset at me because I'm always hitting the latest nutcase and deceivers even calling them out by name have you ever read the bible the word beware one word paul wanted the believer to be on their guard against the leading proponents of spiritual deception against christianity who are they the judaizers were there no others? Yes, but these guys were the proponents right now. These are the guys that are dangerous. I hit the seeker-friendly church when it was there. Then the seeker-friendly church was a stepping stone to the emergent church, so we hit the emergent church. And as we're hitting the emergent church, we just slapped the seeker-friendly church. We moved to the next one. More people. The Judaizers were passing themselves off as Christians. Yet they were teaching it was through the keeping of the Mosaic Law. In effect, making Christianity an extension of Judaism, which it is not. The Judaizers were the very epitome of imposters. Webster's uh, defines that nobody uses Webster's Dictionary because he's too Christian. Too biblical. All of his definitions are biblical, by the way. So they don't use them anymore. Listen. Webster defines an imposter as a person who deceives under an assumed identity. An imposter presents themselves in appearance and by word 
to falsely convince who they are pretending to be to accomplish their purposeful deceit to gain advantage over a person. Wow. It's called fishing. When you go fishing, you're the biggest deceiver and pretender in the world. You're an imposter. You're telling that little fish that you have something for him that's good for him. No, it isn't. What you have is a hook. You're lying to him. You're betraying him. Paul wanted the believer to know the seriousness of this warning. The word beware means to see with a strong emphasis on the function of the eye opposed to being blind. The word is used for looking on a woman with lust after her committing adultery in the heart. In Matthew 5.28, Jesus said that. The word is used for the blind man who washed in the pool of Siloam and gained his sight in John 9.7. The word is also used for intellectual or spiritual perception Absolute for insight. Matthew 16, 12, the word is used by Jesus to beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, called leaven, opposed to wheat. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 2, 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, phileo, sophia, the love of wisdom, and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principle of the world, and not according to Christ, the ABCs of humanism and secularism. Christian psychology is neither great nor not. What is it? Either it's psychology or it's Christian. Every founder, every writer, every educator that's a Christian is secular. Now, some people are Christians that become psychologists, but there's no such thing as Christian psychology. That's like saying a saved Satan. No such thing. It's all humanism. The premise of psychology is that man is good. Really? Well, you just struck out with the Bible. The Bible says man is horrible, sinful, selfish, self-centered. If you begin with the wrong premise, you come up with the wrong conclusion. Simple. The word is made emphatic regarding the danger by being repeated three times. Always um, notice that. When, um, when something's repeated, there's an emphasis on it. As if to say, be very careful, watch yourself, be on guard. You as a parent tell that to your kids, right? When you tell that to your son or your daughter, they say, what's wrong with my dad? Has he gone crazy? No, because they see your tone of voice, your body language, your face, everything. They understand. Do not speak to a stranger. Do not get in the car. Do not take candy from anybody. They understand the severity of it. Once again, the tense is the present active here. It serves like a a command and indicates they were not present at Philippi or the churches of yet, but they could appear any time. He's preparing them. What a good father. As you raise your children, you warn them, you teach them to be prepared for the world because the world is corrupt and deceptive. You want to protect them. Tense in the present active, it serves like a command. And so the seriousness is communicated. They're out there. Look for them. They're clever. You need spiritual perception and insight. You need to know the word of God. Notice the Apostle Paul Describe to the Philippians the ungodly character of the deceivers, these Judaizers. 
Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. I like Paul. But he never spoke like this to believers, only to deceivers. Very important. Jesus, loving, meek, and mild, tie a stone around his neck, cast him into the sea. Wow, that's pretty severe. Paul gives a threefold description of the Judaizers. He's not giving three different groups, as some think. The definite article is present for each of the three categories. The article denotes the well-known dangers of each vicious class. The use of various forms of speech are found in this verse and the next one. Anophra is a repetition of the same word. Big word. Okay, literary words. When something's repeated. Paranomasia is the clever play on words that are similar in sound. Mutilation. Katatome. Circumcision. Peritome. A play on words. We don't get it in the English. But in the Greek it's there. And they're opposite to each other. Verse 2 and 3. Polysynodonte. Polysyndeton is the repetition of the same conjunction in close association. The word and in verse 3. And, and. You know, like when a little kid he has not too much vocabulary, and, 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 and breathe. You know, that, that kind of stuff. Emphasizing it. Alliteration is a word beginning with the same letter or sound. Dogs, evil, and mutilation all start with K. So there's a little kind of poetical artistry here. <laughs> Literary goes on in the Greek. Chiasm is the noun. Phrases, alternate positions in a crisscross fashion like we saw in the Hebrew poetry. Opposites and compliments, which come to an obvious understanding of either affirming, complimenting, or showing the opposition of it. And they're in crisscross. Like, the, like let's say, the king sang, and sad was the lady. Okay? They're oppositions. They crisscross. And so you see that in Hebrew poetry, and we see it here carried in the Greek here. Now, Paul said the Judaizers were dogs. The word for dogs with the article, again, denotes the great danger of these men. It indicates scavenger dogs roaming the streets, feeding off the rubbish, often in packs. The Judaizers were unclean scavengers, roaming in packs, nipping and tearing at God's people. But this is nothing new, because we use that same phrase, at least we did when we were growing up in the 60s. Guy does something, man, he's a dog. Or you say it about a girl. It's not a nice compliment. It's interesting in the Old Testament, it says, no, uh, regarding sodomites, no dog will enter the kingdom of God. Calls them dogs. Interesting. Paul said the Judaizers were not only dogs, but the Jews used the term in a derogatory way to show contempt for the Gentiles. The implication was one of being unclean and pure and profane. This is nothing new. This, he's, Paul is grabbing this from the Old Testament. Isaiah exposed the um, false prophets in Isaiah 56, 10 and 11. He says, um, his watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. 
Yes, they are greedy dogs. They never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. It's like when you walk up to a house and a big old dog and you look over and he just looks and puts his head back down. He's so lazy, he can't bark, wag the tail, nothing. Won't even get up to eat. He just tries to lay around there. Isaiah identifies that's where Paul's getting it. The word appears five times in the New Testament. And Jesus said, do not give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls to the swine. Matthew 7, 6. He's talking about the non-believer who keeps mocking, mocking, mocking rejection. Now that we want to preach the gospel, but when somebody keeps rejecting, they become blasphemous. You know what? Back off. Do not insult God and the gospel. Leave it alone. It's used for dogs that licked Lazarus the beggar's sores in Luke 15, 21. For a dog returning to its own vomit in 2 Peter 2, 22. For those outside the kingdom, dogs, Revelation 22, 15. All the connotations are negative. They're not good. Then Paul said that Judaizers were evil workers. The word for evil, workers, kakos, is evil. Ergatis, workers. We get a word energy from it. Also has the article denoting the danger. Evil means troublesome, pernicious, destructive, injurious, baneful. They were um, worthless people. I've known a few in my day. It's amazing how progressively evil we can become because we're fallen creatures of God. That if we don't have a moral standard or some kind of social conscience that God has given to us, we keep sinning against it, pretty soon we don't feel anything. Nothing really bothers us and there's no limits. And once society loses its social conscience, then all the breaks are out. And that's why when you go to the grocery stores, you can be sitting there with your wife or your child and you have some moron in front of you talking to his friend in such profanity in a loud voice and they could care less who hears it. Wow. I mean, I was bad, but there was a social conscience. You didn't speak certain ways at certain people at certain times in certain places. You knew you were a dog. Just you knew who to bite and who not to bite. That's all. Yeah. They were opposing and destroying the work of Christ by demanding the works of the law. Priding themselves as superior. Under false pretense, they were false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen, Paul tells us. They followed Paul throughout, dogging him. Acts thirteen fifty fourteen two nineteen, chapter seventeen five and thirteen eighteen twelve. Just to mention a few, always following wherever he planted. Here they come. They remind me like Calvinists. Calvinists follow Christians to try to convert them to Calvinism. They don't go to the non-believer to convert them, but they follow Christians to make them Calvinists. They, they like to swap goldfish. They don't want to go fishing where Jaws is at. Notice Paul said the Judaizers were of the mutilation the word mutilation means to cut in contrast to the circumcision and its right. He used it as a pun on words here in what is called paranomasia by using words similar in sound but in opposition to each other, appearing only this time in the New Testament. It's the only time this word is found. He's not using the word to deny the covenant of circumcision but rather to expose the misuse and abuse of the covenant of circumcision by the Judaizers. 
Again, it's the only time that Judaizers are mentioned in this letter right here. The Judaizers, in the eyes of Paul, were seen in opposition to the gospel of grace, mutilators of the body to pride themselves in converts. They were using the rite of circumcision as the evidence of righteousness before God rather than faith in Christ. Now you know Leviticus 21.5 forbade self-mutilation such as castration and that's what it talks about. You couldn't enter the house of the Lord. Eunuchs couldn't enter. This was a practice of the pagan religious um, of the Old Testament. If you remember the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, they were cutting themselves. Normal practice. 1 Kings 18.28 And the more I see our society, the more I see that we're moving back to paganism. Now, if you have tattoos, don't get tweaked out, what I'm about to say, okay? But it's a form of paganism, okay? Everything's going backwards today. And um, it's the practices of the occult, the practices of pagans. There's no refinement. There's, no, there's none of that that goes on today. Writing to the Galatians, Paul said they should castrate themselves. Galatians 5.12 said, oh, you guys, want to, you guys are in for circumcision? Okay, why don't you guys just go all the way? That's what he tells them in Galatians. You know, if you really want to get into it, get into it. Don't stop halfway. I like Paul. Circumcision was the seal of the covenant back in Genesis 17, 10 through 13. Paul brings it up in Romans 4, 11. The seal. The nasty admonition is well after the Lord's contempt for those who destroy the work of the gospel. Matthew twenty three fifteen says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea and win one, sat, one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Because he learns sooner, it becomes more evil than you, younger. Wow. That's why from generation to generation, it gets worse to the third to the fourth generation. Not that God punishes the second generation because of the first. It's just the, the, the first generation sins this bad. The children are grown in that, that home and they learn and the world gets more evil. So they become more proficient in sin. And then the third generation, a little higher. But literally, it's reversed. Really, it's lower. And unless that chain is broken by the gospel... You will be worse than your father and mother ever were. Because we always like to push the envelope a little further. I thank God we didn't have iPhones when I was running around. My Lord, Santa Maria, Madre de Dios, I'd be crazy. The world becomes more evil. It facilitates evil. It influences, it, 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 it tempts people. The believers to know of the rise of deceiving spirits in the latter times in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4 says this. Now, the spirit expressly says, the word is clearly declares that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Let me ask you a question. Some will depart from the faith. Now, if you're not in the faith, how can you depart from the faith? Calvinist? Any here? You can't depart from somewhere you were not. You have to be there to be departed from, right? Now, you parked your car in the parking lot and you departed from it. You had to be there before you could depart from it, right? Simple. These are Christians who go back to sin, back in the world. It's real simple. 
They will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, or demons teaching through false teachers. The believers, too, discern their destructive ways, denying the Lord in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, stealth, and denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their pernicious way, or destructive ways. Many, not some. Many will follow the pernicious way. Who? Of believers. In the church. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. But covetousness, they, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time the judgment has not been idle. And their destruction does not slumber. Judas Iscariots are in the church, not outside the church. Absalom's, Ahithophel's, Adonijah's, Demas's, Hymenius, Alexander's, Phygelus's, in the church. The believers to know that evil men and impostors will grow worse. Second Timothy three, thirteen says, "But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse." Deceiving and being deceived, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. Continuing. It's going to get worse. It's not that you're negative. It's that the Bible tells you it's going to be like that. The believer is to know the responsibility to oppose and even not let deceivers proclaim their false doctrine in the church. Now, we can't stop people on the streets, but people come in here to corrupt, we stop them. Absolutely. Titus uh, 1, 10 through 12 says, For there are many insubordinates, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So he doesn't limit them, but he says, especially the circumcision, whose mouth must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul was not politically correct. He didn't say, and they are always uh, misspeaking, and they're nice little animals, and they're just cuddly little pigs. No, he doesn't say that. He just says what they are. And therefore, Jehovah Witness, Mormons, Emergent Church, Seeker Friendly, all that oppose solid, sound doctrine must be opposed. This was the nasty admonition. Necessary. Notice thirdly, you have the trusty proclamation in verse 3. The Apostle Paul reminded the Philippians their circumcision was distinct from the Jewish covenant. For we are the circumcision. Paul includes himself, notice, as being one with them in this distinct circumcision. He uses the word we, and he and the Philippian believers are included in this. He's writing to them. Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 3, And be found in him, we'll get that as we move on, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is from faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And yet, Paul was, had been physically circumcised on the eighth day of his birth, but the Gentile Philippians were uncircumcised. And yet, he said, we're both under the same circumcision. Because... The true circumcision, as we'll see of the heart, cancels out any physical circumcision. It's irrelevant. There were two categories of proselytes, as you know, to the Jewish faith prior to Christ. Proselytes of the gate that kept the entire law but did not go through with physical circumcision. Secondly, God-fearers who were circumcised and they kept the whole law. Two categories. Paul understood that circumcision was a... Uh, 
a symbolic cutting of the life of the flesh, which is sinful, an external mark, but it did not empower or enable a person to overcome sins or sin nature. You remember when God gave that covenant to Abraham? Think back. When he went into Hagar, God said, I'm going to give you a son. But it had been 10 years, so, you know, him and Sarah got a little fire camp that night. said, you know what? I think God wants you to just go into my mate. That's how he wants to do it. And so God had him circumcise his sexual organ. And what he trusted to fulfill the promise of God. Cutting to the flesh life. The stuff that gets us in trouble. The flesh life. Man. He uses the word circumcision. Peritomy for the Christian of the heart. In the New Testament, Romans 2, 25 through 29, he says, Now, if you're physically circumcised as a Jew, but the non-believer Gentile, but he's a believer, and he, and he circumcised the heart, then, you know, even though you're circumcised as a Jew, but the Gentile isn't, if he's being obedient to God, he nullifies your circumcision. Your, your circumcision means nothing. It's just a ritual. It's physical. It doesn't empower you. This was what God always demanded, even of the Old Testament. This is nothing new. It was the circumcision of the heart, not merely the physical ritual. Leviticus 26, 41. Deuteronomy 10, 16. 30, verse 6. Jeremiah 4, 4. Ezekiel 44, 7. And Romans 2, 20, 29. Circumcision of the heart. Of the heart. Because the heart is deceitful, that's be wicked, right? Flesh life. So Paul consistently taught that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised physically. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith works through love. Galatians 5, 6. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of, cross, of the cross has ceased. Galatians 5, 11. So he's saying, I do preach against circumcision. I don't preach circumcision. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If you've repented, you've been born again, all of this is irrelevant now. Wow. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision, listen, made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Colossians 2.11. Wow. Very consistent through the New Testament. Then notice the Apostle Paul reminded the Philippians their circumcision was not based on earthly rituals. But rather on spiritual reality. Paul in using the word worship expresses the devotion and adoration of God by the Christian. Who worship God. Once again, we applies here. Paul and the Philippians are one. The word worship is from the verb which originally meant to work for wages. Then it simply came to mean to render service with no thought of reward or whether the one served was slave or free. Words do change through time. That's why it's important when you do a word study that you are able to look back to how that word was used during that time. Words that have changed, in, a few words have changed in our own lifetime, if you're at least 50, 60, that uh, are, are totally different. They're used for different things. And, and uh, very, very seldom does that happen in a person's generation, but, uh, but it has happened in ours. There's such a, a speed up of technology and, and everything else. Um, the word appears 21 times in the New Testament and all refer to the worship of God except two or three places. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings, uses the word for the worship and service of Yahweh by Israel in Exodus 23:25, Deuteronomy 6:12, 10:12. In Joshua 22, 27, the mention of few. 
Notice Paul is qualifying the nature of our worship of God. It's in spirit. The word spirit, pneuma, refers to the third person of the Trinity. The nature of the Father is spirit. The nature of the Son is spirit, except for the 33 years when he took on a fleshly body to fulfill the prophecies of the coming Messiah. The nature of the Holy Spirit is spirit. The method and manner of worship, notice, must be according to what God prescribes. The Old Testament system was sacrifice and ritual based on a pure heart. The New Testament is worship initiated, led and guided by God's Holy Spirit who is in the believer. His body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes this clear to the woman of Samaria. Listen. Our fathers worship on this mountain, the Samaritan woman said. And you Jews, or, or Jesus is telling her because she said, you know, we worship here in the mountain. Our fathers worship on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in, in spirit and in truth. John four twenty through 24. God doesn't have hands. God doesn't have eyes. Yet he hears everything and sees everything. <laughs> the Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, and makes intercession for us. Galatians 4, 6 and Romans eight twenty seven. Notice the Apostle Paul reminded the Philippians they circumcised heart then they were totally dependent on the atoning work of Christ, being justified before God. Two little words, in Christ, right there. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul declared that they, and here we, with Paul is one, celebrated their complete and satisfactory righteous justification before God in the person of Christ. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. What he's done for you. How he's brought you into the kingdom. How he's forgiven you of your sin. How he's given you a future and a hope. The act of celebration is expressed by the word rejoice, which means to glory and boast. It doesn't really mean rejoice. To glory and boast in something. 38 times it is used in the New Testament, all are translated in various forms of boasting and glorying, except for four. They're translated rejoice. Matthew 5.2, Philippians 3.3 3 here, James 1.9, and Revelation 4.16. But all of them are boast or glory. The person in whom they celebrate their justification is in Christ Jesus, the title Christos. It means the anointed Messiah, prophesied from Genesis to Malachi, indicating deity. That's the emphasis. And the name Jesus, as you know, means Yahweh is salvation, indicating his humanity. That's the focus. So you have the God-man, deity, and humanity. In his atoning work for righteousness by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 tells us, in that he sent the Holy Spirit in order to be able to worship God. John 15 Read from 14, 15, 16, 17. He speaks about the Holy Spirit before he goes to the Holy of Holies to pray to the Father. 14, 15, 16. Wow, the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul declared that they were thoroughly convinced they could not trust anything of man to be justified before God and have no confidence in the flesh. The word confidence means to be induced by words, to be convinced or persuaded about something. It is the negative, to not be convinced or persuaded. There's nothing. 
The word appears seven times in the epistle. This is the fifth. The reality of the new birth to bring about the new transformed life through Christ Jesus could not be denied. They were fully persuaded. And you know the word flesh, sarks. It means of human substance or source in the fallen humanity. It's used for literally just the physical body. Uh, Jesus took on uh, flesh, sarks, John 1, 4. Um, it's used for human ability in 1 Corinthians one twenty five. No man can glory in his own abilities. And it is used for the sin nature as the works of the flesh in Galatians five nineteen twenty one. And so in other words, you cannot trust anything that you can produce or do or anything anybody can give you to stand justified before God. It condemns you. The true nature of circumcision has been misunderstood even as love has been misunderstood. The true nature of love is not based on feelings or emotions, but trusting Jesus to fill us with his love to do good from the heart and not trusting our flesh. God is um, concerned with a hard relationship, not mere formalities. Um, David said this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51.10 For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God, listen carefully, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 16 through 17. That psalm is very important. David's talking about his adultery with Bathsheba. Wow. When they heard the word, they were cut to the heart. Acts 2, 37 says. By grace, the gospel. God accepts worship that is sourced in and in accord with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That's why we must understand that God's inspired Word is a standard in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 and 2 Peter 1, <clears throat> 19 through 21. We must be good Bereans, Acts seventeen eleven, to find out if those things are so. You have to be a good student of the Word of God. Approve yourself to God. You see, God honors no boasting or confidence, but... Only in his son, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians one thirty one. In the millennial kingdom, Jesus will be called the Lord, listen, to sit canoe, our righteousness. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom... The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6.14 You see, people make the same mistake with baptism. They think baptism saves them. Baptism does not justify you or save you. It is the external sign and mark of an inward reality of having died with Christ and putting off the life of sin because you're born again. If you were never baptized, you'll get to heaven. Now, we believe in baptism. We believe you should get water baptized, but it doesn't save you. It doesn't complete your salvation. It doesn't add anything. It's just your birth certificate. If you lost your birth certificate, does that mean you weren't born? Of course not. Colossians 2.11 By the putting off of the body the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the work of God, who raised him from the dead, Colossians 2.11. You can add Romans 6 in the beginning there about baptism. It's uh, spiritual death and raising with Jesus. You can go to 1 Peter 3.19-21 there where it speaks that water can cleanse or, wa or wash or forgive no sin at all. And he makes it a parallel with the flood of Noah. Wow. This is the trusty proclamation. How appropriate this is for us in the day that we're living today. The exhortation of the Philippians to have confidence in the righteousness of Christ alone for their standing before God. It's been characterized by the necessary repetition. Do you hear something say, well, I've already heard that. Well, listen up one more time. Repetition. The nasty admonition. Don't get uptight when 
deceivers are pointed out. You're really not that good. And the trusty proclamation. Nothing but Jesus. No other name. No other way. No other mediator. It's him or nothing. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for tonight. Lord, we just uh, lift our hearts to you. That in every way, we would honor you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe you're over the internet, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. That you might be forgiven, that you might have hope, that you might have uh, a new life in Christ. As he directs and guides you and uses you to reach others. As he makes your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is your desire to repent of your sins. It's a miracle of the Lord by the grace of God. To shed light upon your heart and your mind. To see yourself in agreement with God about yourself. And that he can do exactly what he says about your life. And so if you need to repent of your sins, and this is your desire, this is your prayer to him, right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.